So let's uh, let's just start with uh, with a prayer. Lord God, our Heavenly Father, we come to you in the mighty name of the Lord Jesus to thank you above all things for him and for your work in our lives and that you call us to know him and to know you and to have that glorious hope of everlasting life with you and with him and with each other in your kingdom. And we pray that you'll bless each of us on our journey, whatever stage we're on, on that journey towards that end and that we might realize that all things work together for good for those who truly love you. Bring before you all the issues we uh, just had in our prayer requests. Please go with us, Father, and bring us through into your eternal kingdom. And forgive us our sins and convict us of our weakness and our sinfulness. We pray in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. Right. Well, okay. So I'm going to go through Genesis chapter 19. You know, in the, uh, the venue, I'm going through Genesis 1 chapter a day. So we're just cycling around. We're up in Genesis 19, which is about the destruction of Sodom, the city of Sodom, and how God saved Lot, Abraham's nephew, out of Sodom. And it's a very weird chapter. People say the Bible's boring. You wait till you read this. It's not boring at all. It's not all. But before we come to read Genesis 19, I want us to just be aware of what the New Testament says about Lot. Says God delivered righteous Lot, so he's a righteous man, distressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. For that righteous man dwelling among them, in seeing and hearing, tormented his righteous soul from day to day with their lawless deeds. Therefore, the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptation, and to keep the unrighteous under punishment of the day of judgment. So, Lot is a godly man. He's a righteous man. He hated all the things that were going on around him that were so sinful in Sodom. Every day he was distressed about. That's God's view of Lot. When you read actually what Genesis says about Lot, he comes over as an incredibly weak sort of guy. Very weak. He's Abraham's nephew. They got loads of animals and uh, they're going there in the land of Canaan and there's not enough pasture land and so Abraham says to him look Lot we, we can't be together we've got too many animals where do you want to go you go one way I'll go the other and he looks towards Sodom and he thinks oh that looks nice so he goes to live it says he pitched his tent near Sodom well it didn't go too well because he ends up living in Sodom and he ends up being a leader in Sodom so that doesn't present too well so we're going to just go through what the record says. Two angels came to Sodom at evening. Lot sat in the gate of Sodom. To sit in the gate of the city meant that you were like a judge or a leader. As the city was walled, if you were one of the guys who sat in the gate, letting people in or out, you were like in the government. So he was a big guy in a wicked city. Lot saw these men and his angels and rose up to meet them. He said, See now, my lords, please turn aside into your servant's house, stay all night. They said, No, but we'll stay in the street all night. He urged them greatly, and they came in with him and entered into his house, and he made them a feast. Paul says in the New Testament, Be careful to entertain strangers, because some people have entertained angels unawares. So who are the angels? Well, I can say it. So, who are the angels? Well, the angels, then, are God's servants, God's messengers, but sometimes they appear on earth as if they are men. 
That's why Paul says, be careful how you deal with strangers, foreigners, because it might actually be an angel. Now, there's been times in my life, and I believe in the lives of all of you, if you think about it, where somebody appeared out of left field and helped, helped me. And they disappeared. I turned to look and they weren't there. When you think about it, I believe you all have those experiences. But there were times when somebody just appeared in your life. I've been all around the place in dangerous situations, and I've had this a number of times. And I think God's trying to make a point, because years ago I lived in Africa, um, and I had various uh, scary experiences, and uh, so, this, somebody would just appear at the last minute and say, and now I lived in Eastern Europe, I was smuggling Bibles, um, so all sorts of trouble in the communist years, and then subsequently, and someone sometimes at a critical moment appears and helps me. I'll turn and look and they're gone. All my angels, every time this happened, they've smoked Marlborough cigarettes. That's a fact. I told those down the venue an incident when I was in Ukraine not so long ago that I was waiting for a bus that didn't come and it was about one o'clock in the morning in a bus station it wasn't a nice place to be. And this woman, smoking Marlborough cigarettes, um, came up to me and said, if you go around the corner there, you'll find the, the minibus is leaving for the town you want to go to, just around the corner. So I walked around the corner and thought, well, where's that woman? Oh, she's gone. And I got on the minibus, we went all night to two or three hours, it must have been about four o'clock in the morning, and the driver said, get out, um, yeah, we're at your town where you wanted to go. So I got out, I was the only bloke who got out of the minibus, and I was standing on the street, and I thought, I wonder where the hotel is, the street address I had. And I looked around, there's this woman standing there, who I'd seen in Kiev in the bus station. And she said, oh, it's down there, you walk over meters down there, then turn left, and then it'll be the first on your right. And again, she was smoking a marvellous cigarette. So I walked off, I'd taken a few paces, and I thought, hey, that's a woman I met back in the bus station in Kiev, I didn't notice her get on the minibus. I turned and looked and she went there. And I thought, oh yeah, marvellous cigarettes, one of them. Now, the more I uh, talk about these sort of things with people, people put their hand up and say, oh yeah, I'll tell you a story. Someone appeared in my life and saved me. And that's it. Some people have entertained angels unawares. And this is alluding here to um, not in Solomon. The thing you notice here is that they say, no, we're not going to go into your house. We'll sleep in the street. And he persuades them. So, angels can be persuaded. God can be persuaded. You see, in Islam, it's all about submission to Allah. Right? God says this is going to happen. That's going to happen. You've just got to submit to his will. But... With the God of the Bible, he is open to some degree to persuasion. He says to Moses, I'm going to destroy Israel and make of you a great nation. Oh no, Moses says, don't, don't do that. Uh, save, okay, he doesn't destroy it. Jonah, he's told to go to Nineveh and say, in 40 days Nineveh shall be destroyed. No terms and conditions attached, it's going to be destroyed. But they repented, and God said, okay, I'll change. So God is open to change. The universe in the Bible that says, I, the Lord, change not. 
But it goes on to say, that's why you children of Israel are not destroyed. In other words, what doesn't change is his abiding grace and his salvation of his people. So, you see how, and we're going to see this later in the story, how these angels were persuadable. God is persuadable. And that's why when something happens in your life, whether you get a cancer diagnosis or something rather happens, God is open to dialogue. It's not, oh, hey, well, that's, that's God's will. You know, that's sort of Allah submission, Islam sense. No, God said this, but he's open to dialogue. He's open to engagement. Why in the bigger picture did he structure his purpose like that? Because he wants us to be in relationship with him. Not just dumbly accepting, but two-way mutual dialogue and discussion. So he urges them greatly. They come in with him and entered into his house and makes them a feast. But before they lay down, the men of Sodom surrounded the house and said to him, Where are the men who came into you this night? Bring them out to us that we may have sex with them. Now don't forget, there's a big hospitality culture in those days. There still is in the Middle East. If you go into someone's house and sleep there, they are responsible for you. If you have guests in your house, I must look after you. Lot said, please, my brothers, don't act so wickedly. See now, I have two virgin daughters. I can hardly read this because it's like unbelievable. Uh, please let me bring them out to you, and you may do to them what seems good to you. Only don't do anything to these men because they've come under the shadow of my roof. Like, in my hospitality culture, I've got to look after them. But, okay, here's my two daughters. What? What does God say about this guy? God delivered righteous Lot who was distressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. Yes, he didn't agree with them. Uh, yeah. But, okay, we can gain weight my two daughters. What? What sort of bloke is this? What sort of father is this? What sort of, what sort of guy is this? I'm saying, people say the Bible is boring. I say, if you ever read it, it's not boring. They pressed hard on the man Lot and drew near in order to break the door. But the men, this is the angels, appearing as men, reached out their hand and brought Lot into the house to them and shut the door. They struck the men who were at the door of the house with blindness. The men said to Lot, Do you have anybody else here, sons-in-law, your sons, your daughters, whoever you have in the city, bring them out of the place, for we will destroy this place. So if they say on God's behalf, we can get you out before it's destroyed. And that's a big theme of the Bible. Come out of Babylon, lest you be destroyed in the judgment. Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law, Get out of this place, for Yahweh will destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be joking. They must have thought, Ah, oh, yeah, a great guy Lot is. <laughs> Offering his daughters like that. When the morning came that the angels hurried Lot, saying, Get up, take your wife, your two daughters who are here, lest you be consumed in the sin of the city. But he lingered. Look, come on, we're about to destroy the whole place, but we can get you out. Always coming and hurrying. He delayed. The men grabbed his hand, his wife's hand and his two daughters' hands, Yahweh being merciful to him, and they took him out and set him outside of the city. This is by grace. You know, the angels said, look, we're going to destroy the place. We're giving you notice ahead of time, get out. Oh, I don't know, wait a minute, I've got to do that, oh, I don't know, oh, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, sometime. Look, right away, 
And because God was gracious to him, he took him by the hand and dragged him out. It's a bit like, in a sense, we've all been called to come out from this world. But people don't. And sometimes the Lord takes you by the hand and pulls you out. Because he's gracious. It's not like, look, I've done so much for you people. I gave you my son, I gave you my word, I invited you, I told you it's going to happen. Over to you now, you've got to make a move. Oh, hang, you're not making the move. <laughs> we take you by the hand and pull you. One of them said, escape for your life. Don't look behind you. Escape to the mountains, lest you be consumed. Lot said to them, oh, not so, my Lord. Lot, just go, mate. Just do what they say. I can't escape to the mountain, lest evil consume me there and I die. Now, they had beliefs in these uh, mountain demons, that there were like evil spirits up in the mountains. So, oh, I can't go to the mountain. The angels say, look, you're going to save your life, you go up to the mountain. Oh, no, I can't go there. All right, not, come on. See now, he says, this city of Zoar is near to flee to, and it's a little one. Let me escape there, my soul will live. The angel said to him, Behold, I've granted your request concerning this thing also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you've spoken. Hurry and escape there. Earlier, God had said to Abraham, I'm going to destroy Sodom, Gomorrah, and all the cities of the plague, that including Zohar. So that's why he's told, look, get out and go to the mountain. But he, he doesn't. Oh no, I can't do that. But again you see the theme that the angels are open to dialogue. They don't say, look here lot, we told you you've got to go to the mountain. The mountain is the place of safety. Go there. And he's like, oh no, I don't want to go to the mountain. But, the angel is open to persuasion. Okay, fine. You say you've got to go to this little town, Zohar. Okay, we won't destroy Zohar then. Okay, just go there. Okay, fine. That's what you want to do, go there. So again you see that God is open to some sort of dialogue, to some sort of persuasion. You see it with Hezekiah, we looked at Hezekiah a couple of months ago, where God says to him, you're going to die. Oh no, he said, I don't, I don't want to die. Okay. So God gave him another 15 years, during which he messed up. But the point is that God was open to it. He didn't say, look, I've told you you're going to die, that's it. Oh, no, I don't want to die now. Give me another 15 years. Okay, fine, whatever. All the time, he wants to have us on our knees intensely praying to him. And you wouldn't pray that intensely if, in fact, the whole narrative was decided back when, you know, thousands of years ago, God made his mind up, and all you've got to do is submit to it. You see what I'm saying? You will enter into dialogue and relationship and living relationship with God far more because of this, where the future is to some degree open, and God is open to dialogue with you over it. Anyway, the angel says, hurry, but time is of the essence, escape there. Yahweh wrote on Sodom and on Gomorrah, sulfur and fire from Yahweh out of the sky, but his wife looked back from behind him, and she became a pillar of salt. God had said, go and don't look behind you. And you remember what the Lord Jesus says, <clears throat> remember Lot's wife. Because as it was in the days of Lot, so shall it be in the days when the Son of Man comes to the earth. In other words, Lot, like it or not, is representative of 
the believers of the last days. You and me. He represents us. And Sodom represents the world in which we live. Right? We're asked to leave. And when the Lord Jesus comes, the first we will know is there's an angel standing there. If you're dead, no problem. You've got to resurrect. Or we, as Paul says, we who are, who are alive and remain, the first thing you know, an angel. The Lord Jesus says, I will send my angels to gather together God's elect. Take us. There's the angel. It's real. Oh, wow. All that stuff I heard about in church, read about in the Bible, is actually true. Wow. Okay, go. Frankly, the more materialistic you are, the harder it's going to be. Oh, but I just bought a brand new car. Oh, I just had a 50,000 quid kitchen fitted. Oh, I've just bought those tickets to, I don't know, some beautiful resort. No, you've got to come right now. Oh, if, if you're not into all that stuff, honestly, I can say about me, the Lord stands in now, angel appears now, Duncan's time to go. Ah, great. <laughs> great, let's get out of here. Let's stay here. Great. Forget it. House, whatever. 50,000 quid kitchen, holiday booked, brand new car. And it's rubbish. Whether you're rich or poor, it make any difference. It's the same mentality. You know, you could be skint ads, but you think, oh, but next month I'm going to start getting my pension. <laughs> the Lord is here. Forget it. Think about it. And I think our attitude in that split second when the Lord comes is absolutely going to reveal everything. Do you want to go? And I think that's why life didn't quite work out for us. I'm not a believer in, oh, how are you? Oh, awesome. How was your week? Oh, that was awesome. How's it going in your life? Oh, awesome. Rubbish. It's not awesome. For anybody, in reality. That's one reason why life doesn't quite work out. So that you get to a point where if the Lord comes now, whoop, yeah, sure, let's go. Let's get out of here. We're going to stay here. Yeah? That's why it doesn't work out. There's people in relationships that are so painful, they're so abusive, they're so complicated. And they can't quite get out of them. And you think, oh, poor thing, how did you end up like that? Yeah. And the Lord comes, those people be like, great, I'm gone. Yeah. So, if you go to where Sodom was today, it's pretty well the Dead Sea, also called the Salt Sea. And all around there is salt. She was turned into a pillar of salt, but so was our salt. That's why salt was used. In other words, she received the judgment that was to come upon salt. And so, Jesus said, uh, sorry, Paul says about the breaking of bread, actually, he says, examine yourselves, test yourselves, so that you are not condemned with the world. What will condemnation look like? I think in practice, and come the day of judgment when Jesus comes back, if you've been of the world, the Lord will simply say, well, go back to the world that you loved. Oh, but well, the world's under judgment. You want to sit with the guys and get stoned down the pub instead of, you know, go to church, do a Bible study. You want to be with those guys? Okay, fine. Now is their judgment. Get back to the world you loved. 
And so she receives this judgment. So, she looked back from behind him. Now, put many of the words. This is God's word, right? So it's not like a human being. This is like God's word. She is walking behind Lot. So there's Lot walking out of Sodom. And she is walking behind him. And if someone's walking behind you, you can hear them. You hear the footsteps. She looks back. As that, she becomes a pillar of salt. He's walking on, and human curiosity would have made him want to look behind him to see how Westmont misses. But he didn't. He kept on going. So I'm saying, she looked back from behind him. So he was walking in front. She was walking behind him. And then Zap, she, she looks back. Oh, how I miss my new kitchen. How I miss my new chariot, or whatever they had. Zap gets turned into a pillar of salt. He keeps walking. She's a pillar of salt. And he doesn't look behind him. And that's a picture. This single-minded concentration and focus. Leave this world, flee from Babylon, get out of it, and don't look behind you. What were her feelings as she turned back? I guess, as I say, it was all my, my new kitchen, my new whatever it was, and my hopes for this, that, or the other. That was it. Well, as he put his commitment to God above his commitment to her, he did not look behind him. God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the middle of the overflow. So all this happened because Abraham had prayed to God. Chapter 18, we'll look at this down the venue uh, on uh, Wednesday. Abraham goes to God and says, If you found 50 righteous people in the city, would you destroy it? And God said, No, I wouldn't. And we're told that Lot was a righteous man. Remember that passage we looked at at the start? God saw Lot as a righteous man. So Abraham says, uh, If you found 45, would you save it? Yeah, if I find 45. And he bargains with God like they're at a market. So if you find 40, yeah, I won't destroy it for 40. If, if, if you find 30, would you destroy it? No, I won't destroy it for the sake of 30 righteous. 20? No, I won't destroy it for 20. Okay, Lord, just one last time. If you find 10 righteous, would you destroy it? No, I won't. So I think Abraham was thinking, well, there's Lot, there's his wife, there's his kids. Surely there's 10 righteous people. Well, Abraham was wrong. They weren't. But it's my question. The whole nature of the whole thing, surely, is that if Abraham had gone further and said, uh, if you find one righteous person, would you destroy it? I see no reason why God wouldn't have said, no, I won't. So Abraham was limited in his vision. That's why David says in one of the Psalms, let your mercy be upon us according as we hope in you. In other words, it is us who define almost how widely God's grace can operate. It's according to our vision of it. Well, Lot went up out of Zohar and lived in the mountain. He's making all that fuss, wasn't he? Oh, I can't go to the mountain. It's scary up there. Well, he does go at the end. Now, the next bit, well, I wouldn't normally read it to you, but I mean, it's in the Bible, so you're a mature audience. People say the Bible's boring, and we're not going to believe that. He lived in a cave with his two daughters. 
The firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is not a man in the earth to come into us in the way of all the earth. Come, let's make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him, that we may preserve our father's seed. They made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father. He didn't know when she lay down or when she arose. It came to pass the next day, it's it's staggering really, that the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father, let us make him drink wine again tonight. You go in and lie with him that we may preserve our father's seed. They made their father drink wine that night also. The younger went and lay with him. He didn't know when she lay down or when she got up. Thus both of Lot's daughters were with child by their father. And there finishes the story of Lot. The curtain goes down on Lot, living in a cave with his two daughters and his uh, two sons, or were they grandsons? Scratch your head and figure that out. Were they his sons or his grandsons? They were faith. Um, it's not a great ending to a bloke's life, right? And in fact, all the way through, <coughs> it's not a great life, is it? It's a life characterised by weakness. All the way through. But what does God say? God delivered righteous Lot. Well, that is not a word I would use about God. I would not call him righteous. I would call him weak. If all we had to go on was the Genesis record, I would say, yeah, well, Lot is not going to be saved. I somewhat doubt it. Especially the way it finishes. You know, the curtain goes down a lot. He's living in a cave with his two daughters and his two <coughs> sons, grandsons, and by his daughters drinking wine. Well, what a great ending of bloke's life. Righteous Lot, who was distressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. The Lord knows how to de- deliver the godly, godly Lot out of temptation. Yeah, Kevin's laughing, but I mean... <laughs> This is all very comforting. It's comforting on a number of points. That this man who externally was so weak, well he was weak, no question, is seen by God as righteous. And is seen by God as a godly man. I'm not saying, oh, well, so it doesn't matter, guys. You can do precisely what you want. You can drink, you can commit incest, you can, you know, not go God's way. It's all okay, guys, because God, you know, God is love, God's kind and all that. No. Because at the very same time, you see God's wrath upon Sodom. God's not kidding, right? God is not to be mocked. God has wrath, God has anger, God will judge. No doubt about this. But you also see that God sees to the essence of a person. And you can meet people in life who apparently have messed up. I have not apparently messed up, I have messed up. Like not, you apparently messed up, I mean you did mess up. But that is not to say that God does not see them as righteous. But on what basis can you be seen as righteous when you carry on like not? In the same way as Abraham, we are told, 
was counted righteous, or as Paul likes to say, he was justified by faith. How this works is that we who are sinners, we who are no better than Lot, because Lot is a symbol of the church in the last days. As it was in the days of Lot, so it shall be in the days of the Son of Man. But remember Lot's wife. Don't be like Lot's wife. Be like Lot, not like Lot's wife. Um, we who are sinners, undoubtedly, really can be justified. God looks at us as if we are righteous because Jesus was righteous. He is Yahweh our righteousness, as Jeremiah calls him. You know I'm always on about people, get baptised, get baptised under Jesus. Why? Because when you're baptised, you become what Paul calls in Christ. You go under the water, that's like death with Jesus. You come out of the water, that's like resurrection. You are in him, and you are counted as if you are righteous. As if you are Jesus. As if you're wonderful. But you're not. But the only thing that matters is how God looks at you. And why have we got this weird story of Lot? Do we really want to know that there was a bloke who lived thousands of years ago who lived in a cave drinking wine and getting his daughters pregnant? Do we really want to know that? Yeah, we have to know that because he is an example of someone who definitely was counted righteous. You look at your own life and you think, if you're honest, you think, well, I didn't do that right and that period of my life was not good. That other period was even worse. And I've got this bad habit, I've got that bad habit, I've got this weakness, I've got that weakness. However can I be right with God? And this is what Job says in the book of Job. How can a man be right with God? And that's a question that keeps coming back. How can man be just with God? How can man be right with God? The answer to that question is in Jesus. Because if we are in him, then we are counted as if we are him. When you think about it, to count someone as if they're righteous, as if they're wonderful, as if they're far better than they are, yeah, that's what love does. The whole in love process means that you look at somebody as if they are stunningly amazing, when they are not, actually. And we who are like third-party observers, we see the we see the innocent young girl falling in love with this guy who's nah, not really a great guy, but now she thinks he's wonderful. And we say to her, do you realise that he's beat black and blue his last five girlfriends? Oh yes, I know that. But he doesn't do that to me. He loves me. And you think, eh, oh, he's a wonderful man, she says. And she tells the truth. That's how she sees it. Why? She loves it. And we say that God loves me. Well, yes, God loves me. And what does that mean? It means that he counts you as if you are wonderful. And if you love somebody, you actually like them. You don't dislike them. You like them. And you like being in their company. God loves me. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And amen. Right, that is how it is. 
What does that mean though? That he loves me. It means he likes me. It means that he looks at my life, your life, wandering around Croydon, wandering around South London doing your thing, and she likes you. He's, oh, that's cool. Oh, she's so sweet. He's so lovely. This is what it is to be loved by God. This is what it is to be counted righteous. <coughs> we kind of doubt that. We doubt that because in all human relationships, the in love business only lasts for so long. And then you get down to real life, you know, living together, raising kids and all this stuff. Um, yeah, and we've never quite been loved like that by anybody else. And we're aware of our own failings and we think, but could he really see me positively? I mean, you know, I say to people, why don't you get baptized? We say, ah, you don't realize all the bad things I do in my life. I do drugs now and again, somebody will tell me, I get drunk, I do this, I do that. Oh, no, you don't know people say, you don't know what bad person is. Jesus is a doctor. He said, I come from the sick. Not for those who think there's nothing wrong with them. And why have we got this weird story about Lot? I mean, it is weird. When you read the whole thing, he is weak, 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 weak willed. Yeah, theoretically, he's distressed by all this bad stuff around him. But he's not a great bloke himself, is he? It's like people tut tut about the state of the nation, the state things are in society. Isn't it awful? It's all going downhill. Well, they're part of it. You know? And, yeah. But he was counted righteous. This is my simple point. By the way, going back to this admittedly very weird and somewhat distasteful thing at the end where the girls get their father drunk and sleep with him, do you see how it works psychologically? The men of Sodom had come to Lot's house, where his daughters were, and they said, we want to wake the angels. And Lot had said, ah, wake my daughters. How do you think the girls felt? Dad. <laughs> what sort of a father we did? And you see how the, you see how the story finishes. You see how the story finishes. The girls rape their father. People say, why do you believe the Bible? I would say that I've spent my life reading the Bible at, at depth and thinking about it. I'd say because it is so psychologically credible. It is psychologically credible. When you read the other ancient books that there are, nah. It's all about scary monsters and super creeps and some king who lived 10,000 years. And just, it's unreal. And he was, had beautiful blue eyes and he had a beautiful blonde hair and he lived for 10,000 years. It's unreal. It's not real. You read the Bible. It's totally different. It is so... What, what happened here actually happened. This is not make-believe. This is not fairy tale. This is the Word of God. And you see how psychologically credible the whole thing is. Dad says, okay, you can rape my daughters. And the girl's like, what, Dad? And the story finishes, they make the father. Yeah. 
slow and venerable. That is uh, impossible. Um, and the more you read the Bible, the more you see it. Absolutely. It, it has the ring of truth to it. There's a little book by J.B. Phillips called The Ring of Truth. No, I didn't read the book. He was a guy who read the Bible a lot, and he was a Church of England reverend up in Liverpool somewhere. And, uh, yeah, that was his conclusion at the end of it. There's a ring of truth in the Bible. The, the whole thing, yeah, makes sense and ties up. But it only makes sense and ties up the more you read it for yourself. It's not a case of reading about it. Read it for yourself, and you'll see little things like this. This psychological credibility. So, we're here to remember the Lord Jesus. We're here to take the, the bread and the cup. The bread is a symbol of his body, and the cup is a symbol of his blood. And by doing this, we are showing my connection with him. We are showing that I am in him and he is in me. As that little piece of bread becomes part of your body, his body is in you, you are in him. The cup represents, or the juice, the grape juice represents his blood. The blood is the life. His life is coming into me. His spirit is coming into me. My life is given to him. This is what it means to be in Christ. And you see the kind of cash value of all this, in that if we are in Christ, we are seen as if we are him. And we who are hopelessly weak, you know, give you and me a temptation when you've got to the right or to the left. Sometimes we go to the right, but then we go to the left. Uh, yeah, we're so hopelessly weak. We don't have the steel in our soul, it seems. We're hopeless, hopeless not. So was Lot. Pathetic is my comment on almost every verse that talks about Lot in the book of Genesis. Oh, Lot. How pathetic are you? Pathetically weak. Counted as righteous. And he loved the Lord. You know, he hated all this sin. He hated it. He sort of did it. Pretty well. Drunk. Committed incest. Yeah. yeah he wasn't great at all. Uh, but he, he hated it. Like Paul says, I do that which I hate. In Romans chapter 7. Um, what I would love to do, I find I don't do. But then he says, but thank God that I am in Christ and there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. So I hope that what you see is comfort and it's not justification of sin. Don't go out of the pub and think, oh great, I can do what I want. God's, God's good with that. No, no. The other way around. If God is this patient, if God is this loving, if this God is this acceptant of me, well, I shall do my little best to live a life of gratitude and to live worthy of that love. So, let's give thanks for the uh, bread. Um, Evia, could you pass it round? Or Silvana? Julia? Yeah. yeah. But let's uh, start off and thank God for the uh, thank God for the bread.
Lord God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this bread in which we see the symbol of the body of Jesus. We thank you for this, Father, and we pray that his body may be my body, that I may be in him and believe that you count me as righteous. And may we rejoice in that and go back into this world knowing that we are loved by you for his sake. Amen. Okay, Kevin, while you're on your feet, would you like to give thanks for your cup? Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, we thank you, Lord, for this part of the service where we shall bless as we share one with another the blood of Jesus Christ. Bless us as we fellowship right now. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Right, well, we're going to give thanks for the... Uh, for the food. And um, anyone like, like to give a prayer of thanks for the food? Let's pray. Everlasting Father, King of King, we want to bless you for this opportunity. Father, we thank you for joining us together, even as we share the Holy Communion and the body of Christ. I want to thank you for each and every person in this place. Lord, as we are going to share our meal together, God, we pray that even for those who could not get their meal today, Father, make a way for them, Lord. Father, we bless them in Jesus. In God's name I pray and believe. Amen. 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 Am